Well, I just want to say thank you to our worship team and for you entering into worship. We have said that worship is that which kind of causes us to take our eyes off ourselves and put them on God. And it is true. If you want to know what it means to have that person in your life, it's just as simple as saying yes to Jesus Christ and opening your heart to him. And, and that's what we believe in. We are a church that believes in the word of God and the spirit of God. We talk about the word and spirit. And as you came in, you've got this little sheet that says study the Bible with us. And if you want to know more about that nature we sang about, it is in God's word. In fact, as I was preparing, as we've been going through the book of Acts, I thought, let's take a break. Right in the summer, people like a little break. Let's do some good summer reads. And I thought to myself, you know, a lot of people be reading different books that, you know, you can find out in New York Times bestseller. There is some really, really great stories in the Bible. So we're going to encourage you to do that. So as we take these, like looking today at Esther, if you haven't read before, you can see the series. Read some of these scriptures as some good summer reads and let that kind of sink into your heart. We're excited to do that, so take a look at that. We would love to give you other opportunities to grow in your understanding and commitment to the Word of God. You can see on that sheet there's these opportunities. One of the ones that we're really excited about and one of the reasons I um, wanted to introduce this series with someone who is a person who is leading lots of people into the Word of God is we're grateful for Village School of the Bible and for Lara, I'm going to say it, I'm going to get Bessanen. Is that right? Lara Bessanen, who is with us, who is the executive director, and, and so she's going to come in and share with us. So I'm going to ask you to come up at this point, um, and Lara, we are excited that you are here. Um, you have moved to Minnesota from Colorado not too long ago. You were executive director over, I believe it was, um, leadership development in soul care at Navigators for a number of years, and then you were for a number of years at Crew which some of you know better as Crusade, right? And, and you were also in um, leadership development and other things there. And so uh, we are excited you're a part of the Minneapolis-St. Paul community. And, and I know much further than that because of Village School of the Bible reaches lots of people. We, I just want to say, if this fall you're looking for a way to really get into God's Word, I, I can tell you there are many people who have gone through Village School of the Bible all the way back to Monty Sholand. Um, and some of you know that name. And, and it continues to produce incredible fruit. So thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing with us. And uh, as I said when you came, I hope this has been a good reception in the Minneapolis area. But it's a tough time to move with COVID, right? Yeah, we had some challenges, that's yeah, for sure. Yeah, so anyway, we're glad you're here. Thank and thank you, you so for much, sharing with Kevin, us. Thank you yes. Yeah. yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> I feel a keen partnership with you all, and I just want to say that we are so grateful as Village Schools of the Bible that your missions committee has been supporting us so faithfully for throughout the years. And our mission is to teach God's word in order to see transformed lives, and we are committed to that, and we know that you are too. And so I just feel like I'm a part of your family, even though I haven't met you yet, and I just want to again say thank you so much for your generous giving and for the number of people that it's influencing throughout the Twin Cities and really all over the U.S. and in South Africa and Pakistan. So we have, um, yeah, we just have had some really wonderful growth and we're grateful for you being a part of it. 
So I'm going to set my clock here. Just, uh, I don't know where the, oh, there it is. Oh, okay. Sorry. Okay. I can see that. Uh, great. So, uh, <laughs> you can tell I'm new, right? Uh, all right. So I'm sorry. Yeah, I know. I see it now. Thank you. Well, the title of the, the topic, the sermon today is that, uh, the teenager who saved a nation. And I was hoping that you might think it was Daniel, but it's actually Esther. So if you want to pull up uh, Esther on your phone or in your Bibles, it will probably help because I'm going to start out with a sincere apology that there's no way I can do this beautiful book justice in the amount of time that we have together today. So by God's grace, I'm going to do what I can, but I'm begging you to go home and read it for yourselves because it is amazing. Actually, I think the book itself, the way it is written could have been part of the New York Times bestsellers list because it's got drama, it's got reversals, it's got all kinds of irony in it, and it's just an amazing, amazing book. So I would like to just take a pause. I know we've already prayed through the worship, but I'd like to just take a pause and pray that God would teach us together as we meet uh, in his word. Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that your word does not return void, but it accomplishes the purpose for which it is set out. So we open our lives to you. We ask that you teach us through your word and make us more like Jesus. Amen. So the big mystery to be solved in Esther is where is God? Did you know that God's name is never mentioned in the whole book? And it's only one of two books in the Bible where the name of Esther is, I mean, where the name of God is completely missing. But I think the narrator, the author, is begging us to see God in the everyday circumstances that Esther reports to us, the historical drama. And as Albert Einstein once said, Coincidence is God's way of being remaining anonymous. So coincidence is God's way of remaining anonymous. The historical setting of this book is about a hundred years after the southern kingdom was exiled into Babylon. And in, during those hundred years, King Cyrus came into power and gave the Jews permission to go back to their homeland, but most of them did not. And so this is a book about a Jewish community that is living in the capital of Persia, and the capital is named Susa. So that's where it is historically, in the city of Susa. The book opens with the most powerful person in the world at the time, King Xerxes. He, the first verse says this. It says, his empire stretched from India to Ethiopia and had 127 provinces. So can you imagine the languages and the different cultures that he was a, a, the king over? And the author of this book really wants us to know how powerful he is. Because his name is mentioned 190 times in 167 verses. So he's a big guy. And he has a lot of power. 
chapter one, he's hosting this huge banquet and it lasts for six months. He's invited his uh, royal officials and the military across these 127 provinces and he wants to show off his wealth. He wants to show people just how powerful he is. And in the midst of it, there's a lot of drinking and so he's drunk and he asks his wife, Vashti, who's very beautiful, to come out and parade herself and she refuses. And so he gets very humiliated and so angry that he dethrones his queen. In the scriptures, chapter 2 starts with him his willingness to be able to want a new queen. And actually about at least two years, maybe three, has gone by when there was no queen uh, in the palace and with him. And so the process to get a new queen is to develop a harem. And we, as, as he's agreed to do that, we're introduced to two of our main characters, and the first one is Mordecai. Mordecai is a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin, and that's really all we hear until we hear about Esther herself. And when she's introduced, I'm in chapter 2, verse 7, and it says, Mordecai had a cousin named Hadashish, whom he had brought up because neither she had neither father nor mother. This young woman was also known as Esther, and she had a lovely figure and was beautiful. So Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother had died. Esther was one of about 400 virgins that were taken into this harem to have tryouts to see who would become the new queen. Remember that everything in the Bible is not what God would want in a culture. It's reporting what is happening in the culture. So I just want to make that aside. It doesn't mean that this is God's process. It means that this is what happens in uh, life under the sun where um, God does not have the ultimate rule. So in verse 10, it's very important. Chapter 2, verse 10 says this, and I really, we really need to hone in on this. Esther had not revealed her nationality and her family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Now the implications of this are that Esther lived as an assimilated person. She wasn't Jewish in her practices. So she really wasn't following Torah. She didn't have um, a, an eating regiment that God had prescribed. She didn't have a prayer regiment that, that God had, had prescribed. So she wasn't a model Jew in any way. This chapter goes on to say that when she goes into the king, she pleases him, and then she becomes the queen herself. And a very important subplot that we can't miss happens in this very same chapter. Mordecai actually gets himself a job in the middle of all the action there at the king's gate so that he can keep an eye on Esther and continue to mentor her. And while he's there, he hears of a plot to assassinate the king. And so he tells Esther, Esther tells the king, and the king investigates and finds out that, oh yes, that's true, that I was going to be assassinated. So he he has that taken care of, and then he writes all of this down in the chronicles of his records. And it's important that we keep that as a fact, because it's going to come up in a few minutes. 
So really quickly, let's kind of helicopter up and look at what's happened. We've been introduced to three of the main characters. We have King Xerxes, who's a very, very powerful man. We have Mordecai, who's a Jew and who's been faithful to his family by taking care of his cousin. And he's very loyal to the king also. And then we also have Esther, who's beautiful in form and who's very submissive to the men in her life. So the big principle here that I'd like to point out is that God uses unlikely candidates to be part of his redemptive plan. Let's double click on Esther. Her family hadn't gone back to their homeland She wasn't living a set-apart life. She was young. She was 14. Can you imagine 14? Her value as a woman was placed on how beautiful she was and also how submissive or compliant she was, not on her courage. Nothing qualified Esther for the big leagues. Can you relate? What makes you an unlikely candidate for God to use? Is it your focus on your career? Is it the critical voice of a parent that still plays inside you? Is it your past mistakes or maybe even some sort of current addiction? What is it that you think would keep you from being part of God's gospel plan? Ephesians 2.10 says this, that we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which he planned beforehand that we might walk in them. During a Christmas holiday spent with my family in New Mexico, we um, played a game of touch football. So it was warm, unlike here, the Christmas is very warm there. And so anyway, it was warm and there was an empty blacktop at an elementary school near my mom's house. And we jumped into teams and jumped into action. Although I'm not very good at uh, this kind of football. I'm not good at eye-hand coordination. My body is coordinated, but not my eye-hand coordination. So I'm not very good at catching the passes or even throwing them accurately. And so after a couple of misses, my youngest brother pulled our team into a huddle. And he said, okay, here's what we're going to do. So-and-so, you get the ball and you lob it over to Laurie, and then she's going to run toward the goal. And I thought, oh, yeah, I can do that. Yeah, I can do that. I can run. So it was doable, and I felt included because my brother had thought through, what can she do? (laughs) Poor girl. (laughs) Right? (laughs) So anyway, what can she do? And he made a plan that made sense to what I brought to the table, which honestly wasn't much. But when I reflected on the game afterwards, I thought about Ephesians 2.10. That when God made and created each of us, he knew what he put in you. He knew the good works that you were to walk in. Psalm 139 says that he took the time to weave us into our mother's wombs. I don't know how he does that. 
He wove us into his, our mother's wombs. So he certainly knows what he's entrusted to us. So this makes us not a seventh round draft pick, but we get to sit in the green room with all the other first round drafters. Because we're in the big leagues. We're called to be part of God's huge redemptive plan for this world. So in summary of those points, Esther helps us see that God uses unlikely characters to be part of his redemptive plan. In chapter 3, we meet the villain. Now, if we were in a Jewish audience, every time the villain's name is read or said, people hiss. So, Haman, very good, right on cue. Uh, Haman was one of the king's officials, and he's rising in power, and so all of a sudden, everyone is supposed to bow down to him. And he passes by Mordecai, who's at the king's gate, so he does this quite often, and Mordecai refuses to bow down. So he is so enraged by this. He finds out that Mordecai is a Jew, and he decides, I'm not just going after Mordecai, but I'm going after that whole clan. So he births a plan and takes a proposal to the king, and this is what he says. I want you to be very astute at listening to how he presents his proposal to the king. This is chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. And it said, Then Haman said to King Xerxes, <laughs> That was quick. I didn't expect that. Uh, there, there is a certain people uh, disputing that are disposed among, uh, dispersed, excuse me, among the peoples of all the provinces in your kingdom, and they keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from all the other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let him make a decree to be issued to destroy them. So the king made an order, and it was sealed, and every province got this notification that there was going to be a certain day set aside. It was put in all the different languages, and almost a year later, so that ethnic cleansing would happen for the Jews. Now in chapter 4, we see Mordecai mourning. He has sackcloth and ashes on, and he's making a really huge display of his uh, very deep grief about this new edict. And actually, Jews are all over the province, the, the Bible says there in chapter 4. Mordecai sent word to Esther, who's in the palace and doesn't know anything about this. She's a little bit clueless. And um, Esther replies to Mordecai that she can't really do anything about it because she hasn't been summoned by the king and it's against the law for her to go in unless the king would um, give her permission to come in with his scepter. So I'm going to read these very known passages because they're so beautiful in their nature. But chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. For Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, and he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, that you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance 
for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows that you have not come to the royal palace for such a time as this, right? For such a time as this. So Esther replies, go and gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, day and night. I and my attendants will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go into the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. So let's freeze the action just for a moment here. In chapter 3, we're introduced to the villain Haman, who's an important figure in the royal government. He's got a real in with the king. He also has a really bad temper. And we, meet, we also meet Mordecai, Esther's cousin, And let's see here. Sorry. Yeah, we meet Mordecai, Esther's cousin. And uh, Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman. And so, you know, that makes him just so furious that he's going to just eliminate the whole thing. He's going to eliminate all of the Jews. And in chapter 4, we read that Mordecai goes to Esther and says, you've got to save the Jews. And the remarkable thing is that Esther is willing to lay her life down just like Jesus. She's willing to lay her life down for her people, even the people that she hadn't identified with. It's really remarkable. What we learn here in this as another big point is that Esther is faith, I mean that God is faithful to his covenant people. Mordecai's challenge to Esther that God would raise up another deliverer if she didn't do her part shows that he in his core believed in the covenant God. And in all of the Old Testament, we're to believe in this coming Messiah that the prophecies are fulfilled through the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're given promises, we're given covenants, we're given symbols, and we're even given types like Esther, who was willing to lay down her life for the Jews. But this is all so that we will see when Jesus comes, that we will point to him and know for sure that he is the one that was promised. Now, in Esther 3, this edict that came down because of Haman, this is a real threat to the gospel. Because we know the end of the story, it's hard for us to sort of live out the tension here. But Jesus himself said that salvation came from the Jews. So if all the Jews had been eradicated, how could salvation come from the Jews? So if you're looking at this from human eyes, you you would say that all of salvation history is dependent on a teenage girl who hasn't identified with the Jews and whose main qualifications so far are that she's beautiful and submissive. She's not a warrior. We have no reason to believe that she's a leader. 
But God was faithful to his covenant promises. Nothing stops our God's plan. It doesn't matter who's in power. It doesn't matter what's happening around us. So in review so far, we have two major points. And the first one is that God uses unlikely people to fulfill his um, redemptive plan. And the second one is that God is faithful to his covenant people. So let's pick it up on in chapter 5, because the action is going to start really going now that we know all the characters. So Esther approaches the king, and he does hold out his scepter. And so he says, what do you want? You can have whatever you want. And she asks him and Haman to come to a banquet. <laughs> Now we begin to see here that Esther is much, is very shrewd and is also very strategic in the way she approaches, uh, the king and asking for the help that she needs. So at the second banquet, the king asks again, what do you want? And she says, well, I want you to come to another banquet. Now why does she do this? We really don't know. She may just be afraid, but we really, we really don't know. Apart from when the when Haman is walking back from the first banquet, he is so happy. He's like whistling because he's up there with the king and the queen. And he passes by Mordecai again, and Mordecai doesn't bow. And he's completely enraged again. And so he decides, now, I can't wait a year to get rid of this Mordecai. So I'm going to see if I can just get him killed on my front yard. I'll have a pole built, and we'll impale him in in my front yard. I'll ask the king tomorrow. So that's his plan. It's not looking very good for Mordecai. Chapter 6 is the turning point of the whole story. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 11 and invite you again if you have your Bibles. This is just phenomenal what happens here. So that night the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. And it was found, recorded, that Mordecai had exposed two of the king's officials who guarded the doorway And they had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor or recognition was Mordecai given? The king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants said. And the king said, I hear, you know, who's in the court now? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole that he had set up. So I hope you're tracking with this. This is, this is big action here. When Haman entered, the king said, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would want to honor more than me? So he answered the king, for the man that the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe that the king has want, has worn and a horse that the king has ridden with a royal crest placed on its head and let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes and let them robe the man that the king delights to honor and lead him through 
the, the, lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming, this is what is done for the man that the king delights to honor. Go at once, said the king. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything that you have recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse and he robed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man that the king delights to honor. So I know you're catching the irony here. The very day that Haman wants to murder Mordecai in his front yard, instead he's leading a parade that honors Mordecai. The reversal in this chapter continues throughout the rest of the book. So Haman's power, he is in a free fall. And Mordecai is definitely on the rise. So the third point here is that God's timing is intentional. In this section, what are the odds that the king would read the very account of Mordecai's loyalty on the very night before Haman was going to ask for Mordecai's life? And that Haman would coincidentally, remember about coincidences, would coincidentally be present to give his two cents on how a person ought to be honored. Seeing God's timing in this book helps me to trust him with his timing in my own life. I've heard it said that God is never late and rarely early. Can I have a witness? (laughs) But he is always on time, his time. Yeah, that never early part, whoa. In your experience, when, when has God been too slow? And what lessons would you have missed had he been on your timetable? My dad died in 2003 after a nine-year battle of cancer. And during his struggles, I was expressing, again, my doubt about a person that I was married, was uh, not married, was dating, excuse me. I've married once to him and that he was not part of this. This is Ron. And he was not part of this scenario. So I was talking to my father about the doubts I had about a person I was dating. And my dad offered insight about timing and about God's um, involvement in our lives that's been very meaningful to me. He said that he was genuinely glad for the cancer and for the suffering that he'd experienced through that because it taught him to be dependent on God in a way that he never had been before. So by sharing this, I don't mean to communicate that everything can be wrapped up and tied in a bow. It's just not that easy, is it? I have unresolved situations, and I'm sure you do too, that you're still waiting for God's intentional timing to change. But I have to tell you that his timing is 
purposeful. That he has reasons that we don't know of. And in this particular story, 24 hours, that's all it was. 24 hours and a sleepless night as part of that 24 hours. And it made all the difference. God's intentional about his timing. And we can trust him with that. Because he's also faithful to his covenant people. And he calls those of us who are unlikely candidates to be part of his redemptive story. So I'm going to rush to the conclusion here of the story. So you might have, you're going to have to pick it up on your own. But Esther has a second banquet in which she reveals this plot that Haman has, has cooked up. And she tells the king that she is Jewish and so that her life is in jeopardy. And she also reveals Mordecai's relationship with her and that Mordecai's a Jew. Well, that's the end of Haman. And he is actually impaled on the very uh, uh, stick or pole that was put up for Mordecai's death. Another interesting thing that happens is that there isn't a way to get rid of the law or the edict that was made that the king agreed to previously. So the king gave permission or his authority for Esther and Mordecai to work out a plan where the Jews could defend themselves. And so they're able to defend themselves And the Jews celebrate this, and then when the day comes, almost a year later, they are victorious. And a a festival is established to celebrate this whole book of the Bible. And that festival still happens today in Jewish, uh, in in Judaism or in with Jews. So we've looked at the book of Esther today, and we've highlighted three important points. One is that God uses unlikely people for his redemptive purposes. That he's faithful to his covenant people. And that his timing is intentional. In the meta-narrative of our lives, this speaks to us today. Nothing is going to thwart God's plan. It doesn't matter who's in control anywhere in the world. He's above all nations He is the king of kings, the ruler of all. So we can trust him with global pandemics and with economic uncertainties. Not only can he be trusted, but he's inviting us in our daily lives to be part of his kingdom purposes. What an incredible invitation. As we close our time together... I just want to leave you with the three questions to reflect on that are on the board. Ask the Holy Spirit to prompt you which of these reflection questions are most relevant in your life. He can sort that out with you in this minute.